My agent called, he said he got some interest in my strip. I'm glad I didn't tell him that I never finished it. I got my cast of characters and outline for the plot. I even got a famous classic case of writer's block. Get it out of my head. Get it out of my head. Welcome to On the Page. This is the podcast that answers all of your questions about the craft and business of screenwriting. My name is Pilar Alessandra, and I'm the instructor and script consultant here at On the Page. Joining me today is a very patient Andrew Chapman. Hello, Andrew. Hi there. Hi. Uh, I am patient. This you, was not a problem. A little we, technical difficulty. We did have a little technical difficulty, but we are up and running. Andrew Chapman is the current showrunner for The Resident, which was recently renewed for a fourth season on Fox. He's written, directed, and produced numerous shows and movies, among them showrunning the ABC miniseries The Assets, writing and directing, directing the indie standoff, and being one of the original writers for the Disney film Pocahontas. Andrew is also the author of two novels, writing under the pen name Drew Chapman. And since Andrew has so much time on his hands, he also wrote 99 Tropes, which is a play about being a TV writer. You, that, that was in 2018, is that right? Uh, I wrote it in 2018 and it was put up in Seattle in 2019. <sighs> Aren't you glad that, it, that it, it, you got to get it out there before everything shut down? Yeah, and because also we were trying to get it up in Los Angeles and New York for the spring, yeah, and that got just completely shut down. So I don't know. We'll have to. We'll we'll hope it. It's a it's a comedy about a writer's room and a showrunner and a a creator having a battle of wills. But the television show that they're writing on is and this was entirely before the coronavirus, is about a mysterious virus that overtakes the world. And in the show, the heroes in the show, in the show in within the play that they're working on, the heroes are uh, the heroes of the television show are just regular people. Then in the play, the twist in the play is that the creator decides to try to take over the show from the showrunner in internal politics. And he wants to make the show about a virus that only kills white people. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. And so this is it's a comic conceit, obviously. And it's all about race and privilege and all these things. Only I had no idea there was going to be coronavirus. Are you sure you didn't have any idea? Did you have maybe inside scoop? Is this all your fault? Did you do this just to make your play more relevant? Because, yeah, maybe it does. Yeah, it might be also. I wrote a pilot about 10 years ago about the coming of the next civil war in the United States between the red and the blue states called House Divided. And my manager is always telling me, look, you are so prescient about these things. What you cannot do is write a television show about an asteroid that's going to hit the earth because <laughs> then we're in trouble. Right. No I kidding. Like, I promise. Stop it. Cut it out. Exactly. Yeah. Um, like, so do you think actually, I mean, since we're talking about writing, when this is all over, and I firmly believe it will be, and we're, you're back to live theater, are you going to do another pass on the play now that we know what we know? You know, I don't, I don't know. That's a good question. 
Um, I'm not in any way, shape or form a playwright. Mm-hmm. Um, I did. I wrote the play because I had a friend who was an actor who's Asian American who complained that there were no lead roles in plays in modern American plays for Asian Americans. And I was like, I'll write you one. And, and I just like, I did it because I love him and because he's a good actor and he's a friend of mine. And so I just wrote that play for him. I have no intention of ever writing another play in my life. I just did it out of, I don't know, cause it seemed like fun and it seemed like a funny thing to write about. And so we did it. Um, would I re I don't think I would change it. It's, it's so specific to like this particular thing that I don't know how you get around. I mean, coronavirus COVID-19 is like, it, it so changes what you write about in the world now. Um, it's, it's very strange. Well, I was going to ask you about that. You are only the showrunner of a medical show. <laughs> so yeah. when will season four come out? Well, we don't even have a hard and fast start date for production yet. Um, we have a tentative start date in uh, mid-October okay. to shoot. We shoot in Georgia. That's one of the problems. And Georgia is just having a terrible time with their COVID infection rate. Um so we hope that we will shoot in October and then we'll air in January. So I guess um, there's just, oh, sorry, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, we already have a truncated season. We were going to have 22, then, whoa, <laughs> then COVID came and knocked us down to 18 and now we're at 14. And so, as you said, as you said that the phone, your phone went down and, you know, no, no, exactly. just visual aids, my goodness. Uh, um, okay. So you have to go from 22 to 14 are, I, I know that you're in the writer's room right now working virtually. Um, yep. I know that because I talked to Jen Klein, who's a, a friend of mine, who's out, who's a co-EP on the show, right? And a spectacular writer and a wonderful person to make sure everybody knows. Well, she told me to have you tell everybody that. So good. Very good. You're jumping the gun. Because I said, said, what what should I ask Andrew? And she said, ask him who his favorite writer is on the show. So there you go. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. And it is done, Jen Klein. Jen Klein. So she she was talking about that you guys have been in the the writer's room. So um, how much without giving away too much, um, is COVID coming into the storylines, if at all? Well, so that was it's a really interesting thing that we debated for a good month when we first came back. Because we came back, we came back into the writer's room in June. So COVID had already been full-blown in New York for months um, and then around the country. We It was a debate. It was an internal debate about we're a medical show and our heroes are doctors and we to ignore COVID would be to really insult all the doctors and the frontline medical workers who have risked their lives for us for the last bunch of months. And yet at the same time to make a show that was just about COVID and that would air in January when knock on wood, we're past it or there's a vaccine in the future, whatever, you know, I mean, our audience might just be like, there's no way I'm watching a show about COVID. That's the last thing I want to do. So we decided to um, have our premiere about it and about the hospital in the midst of the crisis and to have various cliffhanger things that happen, who's going to survive, who's not going to survive. 
So our premiere is set in March, in the in the heart of the crisis, and then at the end of the premiere, we jump ahead to when we would actually air. So we're back in real time. So we we tend to have our show as if it's happening when you watch it. So there's no in the future or in the past. Ah. Um, so only the premiere will be a COVID episode. Now we'll deal with like the after effects of COVID on our patients and on the hospital, but it won't be after that we're leaving the disease alone. We I th- we are betting that people are not going to want to watch COVID stories. Uh, yeah, that's, that is such an interesting way to go. And, and also as far as sort of doing justice to the real hospital workers that are dealing with this, you guys were early in the pandemic, very, uh, you actually donated your PPE to real hospitals. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Our, our, um, our producing director and our production manager on set in Atlanta gathered up. We got shut down. We couldn't finish our last season because of COVID. They gathered up all of our gowns, all of our masks, everything. And they just drove it over to Grady, which is the big public hospital in Atlanta and, and donated it, donated everything. Wow. I mean, that was in the moment when they didn't have enough and it was great. It was really, and it was the, the co-creator of the show who is an oncology resident at Mass General in Boston, who works both as a doctor and as a writer, who's not on our show anymore. It was his idea. He was like, you know what? We need to give. And we did. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, it was fabulous. So as you, as you deal, you know, create storylines that are post this, um, I would imagine too that the the medical the 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 medical knowledge is what could be post this as well as well as well as what financially would happen to a hospital. Yes, right. So, so when we were things. the show is all about sort of the corruption of the American medical system through money and the ways in which big money and and insurance and pharma and all these things. Grew up outcomes for patients. So, you know, what COVID did to hospitals, hospitals are closing down all around the United States and they're in terrible financial trouble. So we're playing our hospital as in terrible financial trouble too because of COVID and because of other things. Um, and just, you know, we're, I mean, look, the other thing, and this is, I'm a bit of a geek, so you have to excuse me. Yeah, we but, have no geeks like, on this show. Uh-uh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just all... <laughs> A bunch of middle-aged Jewish guys from New York who should have been economists, right? But they turned out to be screenwriters. Um, uh, what fascinates me is the way that COVID and the entire crisis has really laid bare the inequities of healthcare in this country. And that if you are a person of color or an immigrant or a frontline worker, you're two to three times more likely to catch the disease and two to three times more likely to die of it than if you are a middle-class white person in this country. And that's just extraordinary and horrifying. And, you know, so like that is in our heads all the time. This, that has to be spoken about. That has to be shown on television. And so we're trying without preaching, without, you know, we don't want to be on a soapbox, but I think we need to address it. You know, it's, it's a real thing. How interesting that that the resident is going to get a chance to shine a light on that. You yeah. know, I mean, not everybody has that opportunity. And here's this show that digs into it. Um, sadly, your 
uh, you have a wealth of material. Uh, fortunately, you're not running out of storylines, I would imagine, yeah, as, well, as a result. You know, as in a hospital show, you never run out of storylines. There's so many things that can go wrong with humans, but um, yes. And I'm in no way, shape, or form a doctor. Like, I didn't even really wasn't interested in doctor shows before this, but um, it's fascinating. It's do you fascinating, think so. do you think now you could maybe just take out an appendix? Like, if you really needed to, if there was like an emergency appendectomy that you could just maybe be like, eh, I can handle it. I know what I'm doing. I, no, but what <laughs> I can do is walk into a room and bullshit you on what you think, what I think is wrong with you. And you'd be like, wow, okay, yeah, I, I better like, I better take care of that. So I have the total doctor affect like down. Do like, you, I can completely. In, in your scripts, I know that in several sort of medical shows, when you get to the medical technical part of it, the, the writers are writing the, the, the story and, and the dialogue and then get to a certain medical, medical kind of place where maybe the consultants come in and actually give the right terminology for that. No, we, we were, we're even more craven than that. We write the stuff and then we get to a really heavy medical scene. We just give it to our doctors. We go, you write that. And we have four doctors on staff. So like we have, we're heavy on doctors and we have another six consultants who we can call in if we need to. So we're very medically accurate um, and we try to get the medical right. But also, you know, in a world where we hand in 49 page scripts, sometimes 10 of those pages will just be written by doctors. So you're really writing a 39 page script. It's fantastic. It's like so easy. Okay, so I wanted to know um, about the structure of the resident. Since you have this overall, this overarching storyline that deals with um, big money, big pharma, uh, you know, a big company taking over the hospital and the people who are involved in that and pushing back. So you've got those storylines, but you also have um, case of the week in a way, sort of as far as your, your patients go. Um, yep. So how do you, how does your writer's room, how do they approach this big arching storyline and then this uh, this smaller story that they have to maybe solve within the episode? It's a great question. And it's something, again, that we, um, we do very pre-planned. So every season we have a, an overarching villain, somebody who represents a problem in healthcare. And in the first season, we had an oncologist who was um, making tons of money, but also was giving chemo drugs to people who didn't have cancer and was actually take, ripped from the headlines. There was an oncologist out of Michigan who did this. Um, in the second season, we had a, um, a medical device company that was making faulty medical devices. Again, and all of this was taken from research about faulty medical devices. In our third season, we had a very um, uh, arrogant, high-billing neurosurgeon who was also, because he was so arrogant and cutting corners, killing people. Uh, again, all taken from real-life cases. So we tend to introduce that villain at the start of the season, and then let them um, sort of float along as somebody who is both 
good and bad, and the audience isn't sure, but the audience catches on quick and they know they're going to be bad, but they're waiting sort of with bated breath for that person to do something bad. And then in the second half of the season, we tend to turn our core heroes, you know, we have four or five people who are our hero doctors against that person or against that company, and then they work to take them down and destroy them. Or because our show can be bittersweet, the, the people get away unscathed or whatever happens, um, the, the villains. So we, we started as a slow burn and then and we ramp it up in the second half of the season. And um, because you never know exactly how many episodes you're going to get, you get an order and then sometimes they add on. In our case, they add on, but this season they've cut it short. Um, you, you have to be flexible about when you're going to take down that villain. And then within that, you have you we try to have a set of stories that are about that particular problem within medicine so like for our when our bad guy was an oncologist we have cancer stories when our bad guy was medical device company we had medical device patients so then we salt those patients in and we try to find patients that you love that can be a patient that can run through the season i'm giving away all our secrets but We've been doing it for a while now. If you can't figure that out by, by watching the show. Um, <laughs> so we tend to have um, a patient who is, you know, is lovable in some way that you are sympathetic to who we watch as they go through the system. Um, and then within that, then we, so that's our sort of our serialized story that we try to have start slow build so the front end will have a little bit of it the back end a lot and then we have cases of the week showing up every you know all the time no matter what so even our most serialized episodes still have plenty of people walking in the door with a new problem that our doctors have to deal with but that said we're very specifically two more things we are not a patient-centric show so we don't you will meet patients and you should like them and you should feel for them or not like them. But it is much more about how the patient and the patient's problem and figuring out the patient's problem, how that reflects on our doctors. So we're a doctor centric show. Now, you know, other shows might say, well, yeah, of course you're a hospital show. We're a doctor show too. But a lot of times, even on shows like Grey's, they'll spend a lot of time with the patient, 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 so that you love the patient, whatever it is. And we don't really do that. We, we meet them. We like them. Our doctors like them. They're on their side. But it's about the doctors. The other thing that we do is we have – there was a book published five, six years ago called Unaccountable. And that is the sort of – and we optioned that book. And that book is the Bible of our show. And it is about the ways in which the healthcare industry is unaccountable. So in their billing, in their prescribing, in the rules governing doctors. So we always try to find, and I was like the, the Nazi about this, what's the unaccountable What's the unaccountable in your episode? So if an, a writer comes to me and says, here's what I'm thinking about pitching, if it's just, you know, a patient has a heart attack and we have to fix it. No, it's got to be a patient had a heart attack and we put in a stent, but the stent was bad. So we have to find a better one to bring in. Or, you know, there has to be some unaccountable element. Or they got billed so much last time, they're afraid to come into the hospital this time. 
And now they've gotten worse with disease X, whatever it is. So we always talk about that unaccountable thing. And that's, you know, to us, the system, the healthcare system is broken and we have to fix it. Now this year, I'm a bit of a roll. You said it was okay to roll. I love it. Keep going. So this year, because we've done three consecutive years of a villain and problems, and we are often, as I said, bittersweet in solving those problems because a lot of these problems are insoluble within the current American healthcare system. Um, because we got, because this is a COVID year, because doctors, it's because it's very hard to portray doctors as corrupt or unaccountable when they are literally laying down their lives for the rest of us and, you know, putting themselves in harm's way and their families. We decided that we wouldn't have an overarching villain um, and that we would go, we would become more about solutions and that what we're looking to do is have our team figure out ways to make healthcare better. And also because we only have 14 episodes um, and so we're considerably truncated season, we thought if we put a villain in, will that overtake our entire season? And we don't want that. So um, this season is a lot about making it better, fixing it. Now we'll go back to what we usually do next season when, knock on wood, we're in a more sane place. But that's that's our idea for the... Well, well as somebody who, you know, writes things <clears throat> and they come true, the fact that you're writing solutions this year is very cheering to me. And I also love the fact that, that uh, you, you could, in a way, I mean, let's say in all wonderful worlds, we start anew after November, right? You know, taking a team of yeah. writers and going, here, government, these are the solutions we came up with might not be a bad idea. Maybe you guys will actually like trip onto something that could make it all work. Wouldn't that be great? I'd love that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I mean, this, then now I don't want to get into the super geek of it all, but we have doctors coming in all the time from outside, from hospitals, from whatever, just who want to talk to us, who want to show up for a day and tell us their stories. You know, the, the problems are big. Yeah. They, they all see the problems and we've all experienced it. We've all gotten crazy bills or waited in an ER for, you know, 10 hours or, had one doctor tell us A and another doctor tell us B and they're diametrically opposed. I mean, it's, it's what you really learn working on a show like this is that it is medicine is complicated and half art, half science. Now, I know we've spent a lot of time on The Resident, but it is fascinating stuff. Thank you so much. I want to tell everybody who's listening that Andrew started out off as a screenwriter. And you mentioned like, oh, you weren't even interested in medical shows, but you also started off writing movies. You sold, you sold your first screenplay at 27. Is that right? Not only did I sell my first screenplay at 27, but I sold it for a million dollars. Get out. Wow, you Never know what? happened again. I was going to ask if I could borrow some some money after this anyway. So this is this is cool. All right. A million dollars. Well, it was the what would have been the 90s, right? It was the 90s. Yeah, and like I was reading scripts at that time. So I remember, you know, that the the million dollar sale. I mean, you know, it was a very it was a rich time for writers. People were, You might have read my script. It was called Seawolf. Sea Wolf, S E A Wolf, that one. S E A S E A Wolf. Yeah, it was an adaptation of a Jack London novel. 
I wonder if I did. I wonder if I did. I was reading for DreamWorks or Amblin and DreamWorks. So, huh. (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to go back well, was, into my old was, corrupted word files and see. <laughs> it was a, a crazy story. Um, it was really, I mean, I'd written other screenplays before, like, you know, in my basement trying to become a screenwriter. Um, but this was the first one that I um, I really, like, it was good. It was mm-hmm. the first one that, you know, you write a lot of bad ones and you just sort of, hope that nobody ever reads them. And this one was good. And I worked it over a lot. And a manager at the time, Remain Unnamed, he read it and was like, I want to option this. I want to, you know, this is great. I want to option it. And I was like, fantastic. You know, and he paid me $5,000 or $2,000. I can't even remember. It was not a ton of money. And he was a manager of talent. And he put his own actor, again, who's going to remain unnamed, onto the script. So we attached a bit of talent. The talent was a comedic actor of the 90s. And the the, the um, script was Seawolf. It was a big action-adventure show. It was, you know, a movie. It wasn't sure. a, a television show. And, you know, it was like a He-Man. It was very macho, very homoerotic, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, like everyone read the script and they're like, well, we love this script, but we're not going to do it with this guy. Like not, just, he's entirely the wrong casting, but it had been optioned by a manager. So this was a problem, but every studio in town had read the script and loved it. And so the moment it came out from under option, 18 months later, they were like, we want this, but we don't want it with that guy. Uh-huh. And so that's how like a bunch of them got into a bidding war and they paid a million dollars. Ah, the bidding wars. That's awesome. Bidding war. It was beautiful. Now, did that lead to Pocahontas? Because I know that Mm. you wrote, you wrote, uh, it wasn't once, once the, once that script had been optioned in the first place and people started reading it, then I started getting more. Um, people were like, Oh, we'll hire you for this. We'll hire you for that. So did, um, Pocahontas, Pocahontas came somewhere in there. I can't remember. And they, there were people who liked me and I've always had a long relationship with Disney um, and the folks at Disney. I've written a lot of scripts for them. Um, I've always known the people at ABC. I don't know, for some reason you just, you tend to gravitate towards a place. And um, I actually, I love animated films. Like if you count my top 10 films of all time, you know, uh, I think the little mermaid is just spectacular. I love it. I love, but I mean, I love like, Miyazaki films too I, I'm not but so to get a chance to work on Pocahontas was really exciting for me and I was like yes I will absolutely do that and so I worked with um, Stephen Schwartz who was the the lyricist um, for like a year and a half two years we it was was very complicated you had to come up with story and then hand it off to a song so you had to sort of write to the song then the song would happen and then you'd have to write after the song and then more plot, you know, you, it was very complicated. And also you had to, you, you're not really right. You know, it's, it's strange. It's not, I think it's changed now, but for those very specific, slightly Broadway ish Disney animated films of the nineties and two thousands, like Lion King and like Pocahontas and all those, they, the animators also 
became screenwriters at the same time. So you would sort of make a suggestion to what would happen and then they would make it all happen around. They would draw the little characters and the this and the that. And it, it both was fun, but also kind of um, depressing because you, you really lost control of the process. And at a certain point, I just, I gave up. Um, and then they brought in a bunch of other people who got much more of the credit. And I've always been a little bitter about that, but they deserved it. And the, you know, well, we're doing did, some course correcting here at on the page. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> now you also are a director and you wrote and directed an independent movie called standoff in 1998. Can I tell you when I went to IMDb, have you ever read the IMDb description of it? Like, mm, like the log line? Yeah. Probably. Why? What does it say? It was cracking me up. It's three sentences, okay? A heavily armed cult in rural Texas is stormed by FBI and local police at dawn. Hell breaks loose. Some cops make it to an abandoned farmhouse where they find two cute cult women. (laughs) Oh, God. That's That's it? That was the whole thing? That's it. Some cops go to a farmhouse and they find two cute cult women. Oh, God. <laughs> who wrote that? I mean, I, I know no, that that was wasn't me. you. That's just like whoever wrote the, the blurb for, for IMDb. That person uh, is so fired. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, the, the idea of the, the, the it's, it's sort of like 10 Little Indians. Mm-hmm. It's um, a bunch of people who are escaping a, a crossfire from a botched raid on a, like a Waco-like raid are stuck in a farmhouse between enemy lines and one of them is a traitor. And, you know, there's FBI agents, there's cute cult girls. Um, there's a bunch of people and they begin to be picked off and you don't know why or how it's happening. And so it's a little bit like there's a, there's a traitor in our midst and it's supposed to happen in real time. Honestly, film's not that good. I'm not a great director. I'm just okay. Um, the script was great. I, you know, like the script, people read it, they were like, yes, we want to make this. And um, I just, you know, I have a way of like seeming more confident and more competent and talented than I actually am. So when you meet me, you're like, oh, I trust that guy. He can do anything. And then, of course, it turns out he can't actually do anything. Um, so uh, it's it's not a fantastic film and it's not spectacularly well directed. I don't, the truth is that I have ultimate patience for the written word and I can go over a script a thousand times and I really enjoy rewriting and that's why I write books and it's why I wrote a play. And I just, I, the word is really, that's where I live. Um, and the, the filmed part of it is not as interesting to me. I'm with like, you. And it's, it's a really strange thing. It's like, when I'm on set and I was directing and people were asking me to make decisions about this or that, I can make the decisions, but the, that, that obsessive quality of, you know, caring exactly what's in the frame and what happens within the frame. I don't have that. I'd be like, yeah, that's good enough. Let's move on. Yeah, we got it. Let's move on. And that's a really bad way to be as a director. Um, and so in turn, it wasn't a great movie. But, you know, um, there's there's nothing that says that, like, directing are, is the be-all and end-all, you know? Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. it's, uh, you know, we put so much weight on it with the movies. But in, in TV, the writer's the king, right? So you're, you're, absolutely. you're living in writer land. And 
you know, as a novelist as well, writing novels. Now, is that a bit of a break for you? Is it kind of like, I mean, I would imagine sort of being a showrunner, it's, it's your art, but also I would imagine a little stressful. You're, you're running a room full of writers. When you're writing a novel, you're all by yourself. Is there something, um, is it a different headspace? Yeah. I mean, when you're showrunning, it's, if it were just running a room full of writers, that would be like great. But it's also running a production in Atlanta and actors and crew and, and dealing with a studio and the network. And, you know, I mean, like it's it's that little thing and then everything around it. So it's um, yes, it's very stressful. Although, again, I have I have a, a sort of interested in the details, geeky, slightly geeky kind of personality. So it doesn't bug me like when budgetary issues i find it totally fascinating i'm like okay let's figure out how we're going to save money and we'll like, go through it so like i don't mind that but i will get to the the novel question in a second i'm not interested in being on set huh. i like i mean i've been to georgia i don't know 15 times now and been on set because i've written a bunch of the scripts and you know you just you have to supervise and you have to be there but i i find it immensely boring um I don't know. I mean, some of our writers love it. They just can't wait to go and watch their words being filmed. It's not me. I, I, I just, I, I lose interest. And I, I mean, I'm fascinated by what actors do and the spectacular way that they can bring stuff to life. I just think it's incredible. And I could never do it. I could never act, but it holds no allure for me whatsoever. So given that I, you know, I think that's part of why I was a bad director is I don't really care. Um, <laughs> the, the novel part is great is it is absolutely a, a break. It's a break from a lot of things. It's a break from getting notes from your studio and your network. Like, no, I mean, you have an editor and they're like, how about changing this? How about changing that? But if you don't like the notes, you're just like, no, I'm not doing it. Um, <laughs> also, this is going to sound weird, but writing a book is way easier than writing a screenplay. Um, it's more words. It's more story. But you can do anything you want. Like, you can break every rule on every page over and over again. Um, whereas in television, you really can't. If you break too many rules, you lose your audience and they walk away. They're not interested. And you see that sometimes on shows where you're like, you know, that was fun. A little bit too experimental. I'm not watching. Um, you know, there are reasons that you teach screenwriting and that those rules that you lay down, I'm sure in your books and in your classes, they have validity because they work. And I'm all for people breaking rules, but you break them at your peril and you break them at the peril of the quality of the thing that you're doing. Um, so, but in a book, that's, it's never a problem. And I'm, as you can tell by my rambling on, I don't have a problem with just writing stuff and mm-hmm. telling stories. I think it's interesting and fun. So, um, yeah, books are definitely our break. It's it's uh, it's funny because those are break for me at night too. That's what relaxes me and goes helps me go to sleep. And my husband's like, "How does write, reading a novel about you know deaths or loss or?" dystopic nightmares how does that help you go to sleep and it's because i don't know what's coming because it a really good book could go in all kinds of directions it will get back on track to its story but it might 
suddenly break off to somebody else's point of view. Um, <laughs> you know, and so I, I don't sit there going, I know it's going to come next the way that I do when I'm watching TV or whether when I'm reading a script where I'm, there are certain structural patterns that are taking, taking hold. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah, also yeah. I think it's, I think it's also the difference in um, watching something unfold in front of you that you have absolutely no control over any part of it. When you read a book, you don't control the words, but the story is being told in your head. Mm -hmm. You are experiencing the story in a very different way than you are when you watch it. It is a, it, you, you see the story, you make that story happen. And you, you were in a way that you just can't when the, you know, there's a way in which film is definite. It's there. It is un, immutable. Um, and books are not. And books are this incredibly intimate relationship with the author. You know, you, you know that author. You're like, the author is living in your head in a way that in a, a, a television show it's just not. It's, it's not a central, limited, personal experience. But this is a, a podcast about the craft of business of screenplay. So let us just pose we we love that okay everybody we we love script scripts okay andrew loves script writing and i love script reading so there so and he loves jen klein too and he loves jen, he klein, jen klein his favorite writer um <laughs> where can people go well you said that uh the resident fourth season we're not really sure when it's coming coming out but i know that you can binge watch and catch up on hulu right now so do check out the resident there um andrew are you also on social media are you somebody who i am i'm chapman andrews on twitter and i have there's a drew chapman facebook page little Um, fan page yes yeah but it's you know what i like i i don't know we could go into a whole nother thing about the benefits of social media i i don't know social media is a lot of work as you probably yeah. know and i'm not sure that it gets you eyeballs uh maybe it does uh it certainly you know when on our show for instance when twitter lights up uh, on a storyline or on an episode and then the next day you check our ratings it doesn't mean anything like hmm. it, a, a big twitter night doesn't get us a big number you know on our Nielsen's. Um, so anyway, that's a bit of a cop out, but the truth is I've let my, my, uh, my social media kind of deteriorate, which is bad. I know it means I'm old. So if you, if you tweet Andrew, just, just say, I loved your podcast and then leave him alone. There you go. I absolutely (laughs) do that. Without a problem. Um, I want to remind everybody to go to on the page.tv. The next class that's coming up. Let's see when this comes out, we'll, have started i'm not sure no it's september 12th through october 3rd it is rewrite techniques saturdays 10 a.m to 12 p.m u.s pacific time i would love to see you there three weeks of really digging into your stuff and you can do that whether you have a finished screenplay or not or a finished teleplay and then on the fourth week uh, lee jessup a career coach will come on in and talk to you about the industry Oh, Andrew, this was great. I really appreciate everything. Appreciate your patience. And I know that you have a a Saturday to get to. So I'm going to let you go. Um, 
But I really want to thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And, and thank you for letting me ramble on, which is like one of my favorite things. Oh, much appreciated. Thanks to all of you for listening and have a good writing week. <laughs>